All right, let me open in prayer, um, and we'll get going here. Father, we are grateful to you for all that you are to us. We're grateful, Lord, that you've spoken to us in such a way that we can know you, we can know ourselves, we can know each other. And I pray for our time here this morning that, Father, you would teach us much and um, that we would glean much for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so... Uh, we, we won't have to, to um, camp out here long, but did anyone consider the questions, the three questions from last week? Can you repeat the question? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we read the Great Commission, and we just asked, do you, see your, do you believe that you are called to make disciples of people, and does that create, what kind of insecurities or what kind of uh, issues does that create for you when you think about sitting down one-on-one with someone? And and discipling them. People call you zealot. So, you know. mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I think? wonder if they're going to have an argument I can't answer. Okay. So not knowing the answer, if they if they have an argument against you, what if what if we don't have the answer? That's good. That happens. That happens to all of us. Any other thoughts? My biggest question is how do you approach the situation when you're witnessing in public? Like, how do you just walk up to a stranger and start that conversation? Well, I think the context that that we're talking about more so is a context of people you already know, uh, soul care, mm-hmm. individuals that... Still, how do you start that? I th- I, I'm a big advocate of relationship and... Uh, rather than just coming up to someone and start blurting out the gospel, I think at times that can send a, a demeaning message that don't really care about you, just want you to just want to win you over to my faith. So I think um, relationship is very important, and soul care is is about the gospel. But very often we're in, in soul care, we're dealing with Christ, people who are already Christians. And how do we apply the Bible to the deeper issues of life, relational issues, mental issues, emotional issues? And I can tell you, uh, if, if this is something you're wanting to do, you want to become okay with uh, not always having the right answer. You have to become comfortable with that reality. Otherwise, you're going to be constantly anxious and nervous. And uh, when you're sitting there thinking about needing to have the right answer, you're not able to listen. You're not able to connect. You're not able to really join that person in what they're sharing with you. Um, so the, the key is not always knowing the right answer. The key is listening and loving and uh, showing the person a genuine interest that you, you really care about the things that they're sharing with you. And if you don't have an answer, it's always okay to say, you know what, I'm going to uh, spend the next few days trying to find that answer, and when we sit back down together, hopefully I'll, I'll have something for you. And I've been doing this for... I think 16 years, and I still have to do that. There are times when issues arise in a, in a meeting that I need some time to think through that. That's okay. All right? Well, well, let me just give you guys a quick rundown. I think this is a 12-week class. Is that correct? Okay. If it's not, I'll modify this, but I think that's what it is. So, okay. <laughs> Maybe three weeks. <laughs> So, so we're looking, last week we looked at the roots of soul care in the body of Christ. This is just a basic outline of the next few weeks together. Today we're going to look at soul care in the Bible. Uh, 
Next week, we'll look at soul care and the use of scripture, which is very important. Uh, And then the God of soul care, part one, the God of soul care, part two, people and soul care, a biblical anthropology, part one, and then part two, the following week, Um, you and soul care, who are we in one another ministry? What is what is our identity? And then soul care, making it practical. We'll look at some practical methods that are uh, that are out there and that are in the scriptures. Uh, soul care in the body of Christ. And then we'll spend probably a couple of, of weeks actually looking at a case together, just working through some practical issues that you might run up against as a Christian if you're if you're really wanting to do this kind of work. Okay. Um, so biblical psychology, uh, uh, biblical uh, soul care, biblical psychology, biblical counseling. I would use all three of those words uh, as basically being the same thing. And uh, back in 2003, I was going through a class at the University of North Texas so that I could become um, certified to oversee interns who are obtaining their 3,000 hours of uh, counseling in order to get their license. Uh, and UNT is probably ranked in the top 10 schools in secular counseling. Um, they have a very good record. And one of the, one of the things that really helps them to stand out um, is that once you enter their master's program, uh, they require you upon the first day of class to, uh, or first week or so of classes, uh, to identify a theory that you're going to embrace and from which you will operate throughout your time there as a master's degree student. Uh, and there are hundreds of theories out there that one could choose. <clears throat> you could choose Freudian theory. You could choose person-centered therapy of Carl Rogers. You could use uh, rational emotive behavior theory of, of Albert Ellis. And you could go on and on and on. The choices are numerous. But they want you to become an expert in one particular theory so that every research paper that you write and every case study that you're working on and and all all of the different projects that you're going to have to do during that time, you have to begin to view all of it through that one particular theory. And the professor gave the rationale as to why they require this, and she said, when you get into the rough-and-tumble moments of a a session and you don't know the answer uh, and things get quite confusing, confusing, we teach our students to ask one simple question. What does my theory say? Because UNT understands that uh, in order to truly understand the information that's coming at you, in order to interpret that in a meaningful way, you need a structure and a system, a theoretical model that interprets what you're seeing and what you're uh, observing as a a counselor, as a person involved in soul care. Uh, It makes a lot of sense because once you embrace that theory, you have a pretty tight understanding of human nature. Uh, You have methodologies that have been developed to address the human nature that this theory espouses. Uh, So it's a very logical way to do counseling. And I just remember, I was just getting into biblical soul care at the time, biblical counseling, and I remember thinking, man, that's exactly what we do in biblical counseling, but we don't ask what does our theory say. We ask the question, what does our theology say? Uh, what what does theology? How does theology inform uh, my understanding of, of marriage problems? How does my theology inform my understanding of depression or anxiety um, or anger? And as I began to learn way back then, theology has a lot to say about all of those things. And so the, our theology is our grid of understanding. And today we're going to look at um, just. Uh, 
what is theology, and then how, do, how, how does the Bible fit into all of that? Uh, John Frame, who's a, an amazing theologian, said this, the work of theology is not to reproduce the emphasis of Scripture. To do that precisely would require the theologian merely to quote the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, but to apply Scripture to the needs of people. And John Frame is a very esteemed theologian and scholar, but he understands that uh, true theology is going to, to seek to meet the needs of those in the church. And then Wayne Grudem, another theologian, says this, I'm convinced that there is an urgent need in the church today for much greater understanding of Christian doctrine or systematic theology. Not only pastors and teachers need to understand theology in greater depth, the whole church does as well. One day, by God's grace, we may have churches full of Christians who can discuss, apply, and live the doctrinal teachings of the Bible as readily as they can discuss the details of their own jobs or hobbies or the fortunes of their favorite sports teams or television program. So both of these men, probably two of the most respected uh, guys who've written systematic theology textbooks, both recognize the importance that theology isn't just something that you learn and keep here, but it's something you live out in one another ministry. Um, So we glean our theology, obviously, from the Bible. Uh, The scripture... Uh, when we're when we're thinking through how do we conceptualize people, we have a lot of voices that are speaking into our minds and into our hearts and our culture. Uh, we live and, and, and breathe psychology uh, through television, through commercials, through sports, through everything that through magazines, books, psychology is out there. So there are many voices, and and we have to at, at the end of the day ask which of these voices are trustworthy and how do we know and. Uh, the only way to really answer that question well is to become uh, very theologically astute. Um, the Bible is our authority, ultimately, in soul care. Uh, in Second Timothy three sixteen and 17, uh, Paul writes, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So Paul uses a graphic metaphor of, of God breathing the scripture, to demonstrate that God himself is the author of the words we read in the Bible. We speak of the inspiration of Scripture, but here Paul speaks of the expiration, the breathing out of Scripture. It comes straight from the person and mouth of God. And then Peter, in 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21, and we have have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this uh, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So to claim the Bible is a God-breathed book is to say it is inspired or directly given to us by God through His Spirit. That is why any and all truth claims must be subject to its scrutiny. Since the Bible comes from God, we are assured it is perfect and true. So this is something I would say that uh, no other form of care can make the claim that we're making here. That we actually have this center point, this reference point that guides and directs everything that we, we do and say in counseling. Now, obviously, we can misuse the Bible. We can misapply the Bible. We'll talk about that next week. 
But when we are working biblically and truly applying Scripture as, as it's designed to, to be applied, uh, we are able to say, what I'm saying to you is true. And the reason I know it's true is because it's from Scripture. And the reason that I know that the Scriptures are true is because they come from an eternal God who has existed uh, forever. And uh, he's perfect. And there, there is nothing in him that, uh, that could lie to us. And that brings us to this place of inerrancy, things that you guys are probably familiar with. Um, Proverbs 35 and 6, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And then Hebrews six seventeen and 18. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So that's a wonderful foundation. I mean, there are a myriad of passages that would point us to the inerrancy of God's word so that when we are applying these things, we don't have to wonder, is the next research um, uh, project going to prove this information is wrong or are we on the right track? That's never going to happen to us in biblical care. Uh, because we are rooting what we're saying and what we're sharing with people in eternal truth. Okay. Now, some people uh, like to take ideas outside of uh, Christianity, outside of the Bible. Now, as I said, we have so many uh, self-help. We just live in a self-help culture. You can you can go to the Christian bookstore. I just came back from the American Association of Christian Counselors conference. And it would blow your mind uh, how many uh, books that people are trying to sell their latest ideas and their latest um, three-step programs to overcome a, a bad marriage. Um, it's, it's just prevalent, not only in the secular culture, but very much so within the church. Um, and so what a lot of people have done is they try to use the Bible as a filter. And they'll say, because a certain idea, let's just say, for instance, something out there called cognitive behavioral therapy. And cognitive behavioral therapy is a form of therapy that deals with belief systems and deals with your thinking. So early on, a lot of Christian psychologists and Christian counselors came along and said, well, since the Bible speaks of thoughts, maybe it's very compatible with cognitive behavioral therapy. And one form of, of cognitive therapy is, is called rational behavioral therapy. And it's, it's developed by a guy who was very atheistic named Albert Ellis, who, who believed that um, if you counsel someone to embrace their faith statements, that you're really counseling them to just remain in their neurosis, that you have to pull people away from faith in order to help them get better. Um, and he, he was a guy that believed that you should never have uh, state judgments about yourself. You should never have uh, judgments about other people. Um, but that we're all basically neutral. Uh, there's no bad person on the planet. There's no good person on the planet. We just are people that do good things or bad things. Um, but 
a lot of people in the church tried to take that theory and pour it through the Bible as a filter and say, well, if whatever comes out of that uh, at the end of the day, maybe we can use it in our own Christian care. But the problem here is that uh, that theory is rooted in humanism. So even the idea, the word thought, the word belief, the word thinking, uh, that construct is very different <coughs> under that theory than it is from a biblical frame of reference. Uh, for instance, when we consider thinking uh, biblically, we're not just considering to, to create a different thought process to make us feel better. That's not the ultimate purpose for our thoughts. Would you guys agree with that? Right. What is the ultimate purpose of our thoughts? To glorify God. To glorify God. See, Albert Ellis doesn't even have that on his radar. He doesn't even understand that concept. So when we're dealing with people in their thought life, uh, we're not going <laughs> to simply try to help them think nice thoughts so uh, fear will go away. Um, we hope fear goes away, but maybe it won't. And how do we glorify God in our thoughts and in our minds when we're really struggling with a very powerful bout of anxiety that just doesn't go away with a nice thought? Um, so using the Bible as a filter is not what I ascribe to. Uh, rather than using the scripture as a filter, we start with the, the Bible. This is the issue of epistemology. How do we know what we know? Well, in biblical soul care, our epistemological base is the Bible. It's not research. We don't start with a secular theory, which has its own epistemology, its own presuppositions, and pour it through the Bible and hope something nice comes out the other side. We simply start with this book and say, let's ask of the word the same questions that psychology is asking. Who are we? Why do we do the things that we do? How do we change? And then what is the purpose of change? I really don't need a secular theoretical model to begin to answer those questions because the Bible answers those questions very, very well. Another uh, use of scripture is the Bible as encyclopedia method. Yes, sir. Can I ask you a question on that? Absolutely. So, um, agreeing with what you're saying, for sure, um, what is, how would that motivate um, Christian biblical counselors to do any kind of research? Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. testing of their own biblical counseling theory. And, yes. I mean, how do you... How do you hold a position you're holding and then actually interpret and benefit from secular research? Yes, that's a good question. So, Because um, you're not saying that you discount it, right? I'm saying that uh, my, my perspective is until we have a very rich and robust theology of soul care, we're really not even equipped to interpret the research. Um, because research, all research, every ounce of research has epistemologies. Uh, Thomas Kuhn, in his book, uh, the, Revo uh, the Revolution of Science, uh, showed us that when a researcher does research, uh, they have a certain worldview, and sometimes they come away from that re research viewing a very different world. You think about Copernicus. Uh, imagine how their, their whole mindset changed when, when that discovery was made. So we need a theology first, but, but we're not separatists either. And some in the biblical soul care, biblical counseling realm have been separatists, that all secular is over there and no good, and we're here and we're Bible-only kind of people. 
Uh, we want to be redemptive in our work in soul care so that when we go to research, uh, for instance, um, not long ago, <clears throat> I read, a, I picked up a book at Half Price Books called uh, something like How God Changes Your Brain. I thought, wow, this is going to be really cool. So I go read the book <laughs> and um, thinking it, I thought it might, you know, have some Christian leaning to it. It was not Christian at all. It was a secular research um, and they were just showing in neuroscience how when people meditate and when people pray and when people read scripture, how it affects the brain. And it was actually profoundly fascinating. Um, now, for them, you could pray to a doorknob. It didn't really matter the object. So they weren't talking about a true God and a personal God. But what they did discover uh, really emphasized the beauty of what we read when, in the Bible when it says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, it, it, they, they discovered that when people pray, the parts of the brain that, that um, facilitate anger settle down. And parts of the brain that are able to think more reasonably and logically, the frontal lobes begin to wake up. It's just, it, it, we are mind-body at all times, and there's not a time when we're not. So we want to we read the research and look at the research with redemptive eyes. And sometimes we'll just have to reinterpret some of the conclusions. Sometimes we'll have to, to uh, throw them out because they're just not compatible. Mm-hmm. Does that answer your question? It does. Yeah. Okay. Francis Schaeffer's statement, all truth is God's truth. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. exactly right. And, and it's, it's a little difficult in psychology because um, the truth that most, I mean, the history of, of psychology is one that's been very anti-God, anti-Christian. Um, and they're dealing with the very same things we're dealing with as, as believers. And so it gets, it gets really difficult to, to know, you know, what truth claims we can truly accept. Um, another method that you would want to probably avoid biblically, okay, the Bible is our authority. Uh, we, wanna, we don't want to necessarily use the scripture as a filter. Um, and we also don't want to use the scripture as an encyclopedia. This is something that a lot of Christian counseling folks do so if you were to come into me and you were struggling with anxiety um, using the Bible as, as an encyclopedia would basically I would go to the back of my Bible look up the word anxiety and find a couple of passages and read them to you okay <laughs> so I might find Philippians 4 5 and 6 let your reasonableness be known to everyone the Lord is at hand do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God okay and I've seen this and and biblical help, uh, biblical counselors have probably been guilty of this at, at times so from these passages I may offer some basic insight for this person uh, the Lord is present, so there's no need to give in to anxiety. Okay, When you feel anxious, try praying prayers of thanksgiving. Uh, God wants to know your requests because he cares for you, and maybe you should memorize these verses as a means to relax when anxiety strikes. That, that might be some ways that folks would use uh, the, the, the Bible as an encyclopedia. Now, if you came to someone for help, <clears throat> not necessarily a counselor, but just someone in the church, and you were struggling with severe anxiety, and they pulled out that passage and gave you things like this. What, what do you think would be your response? Shame. I already know that. Yeah, yeah. I've been trying that. I've heard that before. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Someone said shame. Okay. Uh-huh. Expound on that, whoever said that. That you shouldn't be feeling it, mm. but you are feeling it. Uh-huh. 
Okay. Yeah. Good. I don't think you feel understood. Absolutely. You feel like you don't understand what mm -hmm. you haven't really listened to me what's going on yeah. or tried to get to the depth of what is actually happening. Yeah. Yeah. And that would be, you know, this is this is kind of what we might defer to if we feel like we don't have an answer. I've got to give something so you and that effort to give an answer actually demeans the person's experience with you that they weren't really listening to me and caring about me in the moment. They were just needing to give me a, a quick Bible verse. I think on that point, it's also to remember that the scriptures were written out of experience too. Mm. I mean, yes, they're inerrant and inspired, but that yes. verse was written by human beings That's great. who lived a life. So mm -hmm. it's not this static encyclopedia. Yes. So sometimes the answer that's not appropriate on the front end becomes the perfect answer on the back end of several conversations because mm -hmm. you took the time with Brian saying to get to know the person right. step into those feelings of shame yes. and then finally the verse sits in that moment and it feels it fits right mm -hmm. yeah that's great and so often uh, you know what you were saying uh, the shame there is you, you feel like as a Christian I should not be struggling this way um, when in reality uh, we need to provide a lot of space as Christians to struggle. Uh, I was very inspired uh, this week. The, the one biblical counselor that was at this conference was Ed Welch. Um, and he, in his presentation, uh, just, just became very vulnerable and shared how he has, in the past, not so distant past, struggled with some extreme panic attacks. And even him opening that up, you know, you as, as a person that's interested in helping others, when, when we open up our own hearts appropriately, for instance, if you're sitting there with 45 minutes with someone, you don't want to talk about your stuff for 40 minutes and give them five. <laughs> but as they're talking, there is something very powerful about this, your own disclosure, your own vulnerability. I've been there too. Uh, I've struggled with anxiety myself, and it was crippling. You know, just... Allowing that person to recognize you're talking to another human being that is fallible and fallen and has his or her own set of struggles. Um, so this is very sterile. This Let me find a quick verse and, and yeah. give that to you. Take that and call me in the morning kind of thing. Um, so is that what you mean when you say a real field of relationship is just kind of let identify in the best way you know how and then return to the Bible and find something that kind of links the two situations together to make the person think? At some point, yes. Um, I mean, sometimes you'll, you know, it would. I think it would be very appropriate at the end of this conversation to, to pull out Scripture and say, you know, we may have a long way to go before we can live out this passage, but let's just read this passage together and pray that the Lord in His grace and by His Spirit would help us get there. And that he would give us faith in him uh, in terms of the timing that he's going to choose for that. Because we'll get over this anxiety when he's ready. And that may be in a week. That may be in three months. I don't know. But part of the struggle with anxiety isn't just overcoming the symptom. It's developing a deeper a trust in the Lord who is presiding over that whole thing. Okay. Um, so we, we might pull out the scriptures at the end, but, but it's not... If you do this, you, things will be fine. It's here's where we we hope we can get to. Well, and I love what you just said. You said we and us, not mm -hmm. you, right? 
That's great. Yes. Yes. Yeah, all that's very good. Always include yourself as a fellow struggler. That's beautiful. And when people feel that, they, they, they are going to feel safe, uh, and they're going to know that they can open up w with you, and, and true one-to-one -one ministry can unfold. Um, some other limitations to this approach is that our ability to, biblical, to biblically help others becomes constricted to passages that mention the word anxiety, which is very anemic, almost utilizes the scripture as one of many sources from which to glean relaxation techniques, right? That's not what the Bible is for. Um, and this approach either requires scripture to be exhaustive as it pertains to all terminology we find within our culture, within psychology, within psychiatry, or we must admit the Bible is not suffi a sufficient source from which to draw effective counsel. So well, here's one example. You guys would probably never see this one, but I have. Uh, someone comes in to me and... Um, they say they, they were at the psychiatrist last week and they were diagnosed with trichotillomania. Well, what am I going to do <laughs> if I'm using, if, I, if all I have at my disposal is the Bible as an encyclopedia? I'm in deep trouble. I don't think that word is in the Bible. <laughs> but, it, but it is a word that, is, that psychiatrists develop that is uh, it's in the anxiety disorder um, category. Uh, where people have this anxious tendency to pull their ha hair out obsessively. Um, but does the Bible speak into that? And I, I think if we, if we learn how to appropriately utilize Scripture, that, that we have something very powerful to offer that person who's struggling in that way. What we're going to lean towards or embrace as people uh, seeking to help others biblically is more uh, the Bible as a lens. This is not a new idea. This is uh, something John Calvin taught, um, that uh, the Bible is not an encyclopedia. The Bible is a lens. Ed Welch and David Pallison have written on this, and they say the Bible gives the redemptive lens through which we see everything, politics, art, relationships, war, economics, engineering, and psychology. We come to understand ourselves, our problems, and the means by which grace changes us. This lens pervasively alters our vision. The redemptive word of the true God affects all seeing. So, for example, that person that comes in with trichotillomania. Um, I think one of the first things that the Bible, in terms of being a lens for me, is to look at this person as uh, a creature created in the image of God. A human being, not not a person with a big label that is now threatening them, and a person, yeah, they they're doing some things that are very impulsive and very compulsive and scary, but I'm not going to classify them in the the realm of disorder and dysfunction. That's not that's not the lens through which I'm going to interpret them as people, and that in my profession that is how people see people. You you're you're bipolar. Um, uh, you're a sex addict. You're the, You're an alcoholic. Uh, first and foremost, I just want to see people as people created in the image of God and people who are just like me. And maybe I'm not pulling my hair out obsessively, but, but I'm somewhere on the same spectrum as they are when it comes to anxiety and fear. If you just put me in the right moment at the right time, it'll come out. It's a guarantee. 
So I'm far more like the people that I'm serving than different. And I can say that about anyone that I'm counseling. One of the most amazing experiences I've ever had as a counselor, there was a gentleman in his 80s that came to see me. And he, he had been a pastor in the Northeast in his younger years and had spent many years, decades in prison because he had molested many, many, many young boys. And he is a registered sex offender here in uh, Texas. Um, and he was coming to me because in his 80s, his son, his uh, grandson was a senior in high school and he started trying to groom his grandson to abuse him. It was a terrible situation. And I just remember this man coming in at our first meeting and he was mad, he was angry, he didn't want to be around me, he, just, he was scared to death to disclose what was going on, except that his three daughters were sitting in there with me so he had no chance to hide because <laughs> they were furious with him. Uh, they didn't know at that point if, if they would just have to dispel with him forever and get away from him because he had already ruined their lives doing what he had, had done early on. Um, but I looked at this guy and I, I, I said, this person is more like me than not like me. He, he has a sin problem that, you know, as I got to know him, captured him as, as a young boy who got molested. I mean, he was a victim of this thing. And as a Christian, couldn't deal with it. I mean, he was a Christian and a pastor, and you, you better not dare talk about a sexual struggle out loud, right? Mm -hmm. And when he went to prison, he was diagnosed with bipolar, and, and uh, I was the first guy, he's 80 years old, and, and I think he got caught in his 30s. He's 80 years old. I'm the first human that ever said to him, what you're doing is not a disease, it's a sin. You don't have a disease. Bipolar doesn't cause a man to molest children. There's something dark and evil that is causing that. And he just burst out into tears. Uh, but before I said that to him, weeks went by before I said that to him, that first day, I just, I just wanted him to experience the grace of Christ. I didn't judge him. My jaw didn't drop. I didn't act like, oh my gosh, who are you? I told him, I don't know what you've been through. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, uh, you have a perfect record. You're a righteous man. You are holy in the sight of the Creator. <coughs> and he just cried and cried and cried. He couldn't stop crying. And then he, he just, I can't believe that, Jeremy. He was an Assembly of God pastor. So I spent a year with this man. Um, and I think the Lord saved him during this time together. Because it's the first time he really saw the gospel. It's the first time he laid down the need to perform. Uh, it's the first time he received the grace of Christ in his life. And I got, at the conclusion of that experience, I got to see this whole family in my office reunite in tears. Everyone loving each other. And they ch that's been three years ago. And they check in with me periodically and they're doing wonderfully. And, and granddad... Uh, you know, there are still things that we want to be wise and how he's interacting with children and all of this stuff and all that's in place, but he's a changed man. And that would have not happened if I needed to pull out a Bible verse or if I looked at him as a man who, who just had a disorder. I looked at him as a human. And, and, and that's the scriptures being a lens for me uh, and recognizing 
you know, Ephesians 2, we were all in that place at one time. But God, in mercy, made us alive. Examining struggles through Scripture as our sacred lens will move us to ask significant theological questions. These questions will greatly inform our system of psychological soul care. And I'll just mention a few of those. Who is God in this situation? I mean, these are questions that help form our theological lens. Who is God in this situation? What attributes of his nature apply in this situation? What promises to the believer while here uh, apply to the believer while he or she is enduring this grueling battle within sin or suffering? What is the telos or the ultimate goal of counseling, soul care, and change? And the ultimate goal is the glory of God. The glory of God. And the conformity of our hearts into the image of Christ by his grace. Who is the agent of change? I thank God every day when I leave my office that it's not me. Because that would be a huge (laughs) burden to bear. And I can walk out of my office every day. It can be a terrible day. Eight hours, just terrible stories. Nothing's getting better and it seems like it's getting worse. And I can just walk out and say, Holy Spirit, you're the one. I'm going to trust you today with these people. And I'm not going to be so arrogant to think that I have any power to do anything to change any, anyone. Um, so don't ever take that on yourself. Realize when you're counseling, you're entering into a personal encounter, not with just two people, but three. The Lord is there. And he's the only one able to make the change. What redemptive themes apply in this situation? The grace of God, forgiveness. How is grace being poured out in this moment? How is sin at play? What captures and functionally rules the person's heart? And we'll talk more about that. Functionally, functional faith and confessional faith. Two very different things. Uh, I, I, I believe Jesus is Lord. But when I'm in traffic, I don't function as that's the case. (laughs) We'll talk more about that. Uh, How might God be seeking to conform this individual to the image of Jesus through this experience? See, sometimes we're so caught up in getting over the depression or getting the marriage to a healthy place or getting over the anxiety or overcoming the addiction. We get so caught on that one thing that we miss what God is doing in the struggle. Uh, there's a wonderful book. I think if you, if you ladies are in the Bible study, I think it's Extravagant Grace. If you don't have it, get it, read it. And it's based on the theology of John Newton. And he did a great job of saying one form of sanctification is that the fruit of God is being born in our lives. But another form of sanctification is that our faith in the gospel is growing when things aren't getting better, when the struggle persists. That I'm being sanctified as I'm resting in the full promises of the gospel, even while change is still far away. Um, And then what is the person's ground of trust, God or something else, and how do we know? So that's just a starting point in terms of the Bible. Um, Some some things we want to avoid in terms of using it as a filter, as an encyclopedia. And then part of our class here is is that last piece, uh, learning scripture in such a way that it becomes the lens through which we see people and their struggles okay any questions any thoughts 
I'll, I'll let you guys pass this around. I don't think we have time to go over it. Maybe we'll hit it next time. But this is one example of how the Bible informs struggles. Um, actually, I'll, I'll read over it very quickly. Um, the secular world looks can look at a person and see certain things. And then we can come and look at that very same person and see things very differently. Okay. So this is uh, the psychiatric explanation for paranoid personality disorder. Okay, And here's the, the psychiatric interpretation. Pervasive distrust and suspiciousness of others such that their motives are interpreted as malevolent, beginning by early adulthood and present in a variety of contexts, as indicated by four more of the following. Suspects without sufficient basis that others are exploiting, harming, or deceiving him or her, is preoccupied with unjustified doubts about the loyalty or trustworthiness of friends and associates, is reluctant to confide in others because of unwarranted fear that the information will be used maliciously against him or her, persistently bears grudges, is unforgiving of insults, injuries, remarks, and events, perceives attacks on his or her character or reputation that are not apparent to others and is quick to react angrily or counterattack, has recurrent suspicions without justification regarding fidelity of the spouse and sexual partner. I've seen people like this. I know people like this. And this is a pretty good descriptor. Okay? I mean, it describes some things that we're seeing. But when you, when you bring a biblical lens to the same issues, we see some, some other information that becomes apparent. The Bible is very clear in stating the fear of man brings a snare, but without trust in the Lord, uh, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Additionally, Paul attributes evil suspicion and strife to those who do not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness. With no fear of the Lord in their hearts, these individuals may engage in devising wicked schemes in their hearts, having feet quick to rush into evil, bearing false witness, pouring out filthy lies, stirring up dissension, grumbling against others, having mouths full of cursing and bitterness, slanderous accusations, Allowing a root of bitterness to spring forth, which defiles many, and bearing grudges. Same, same person, just a different lens. Um, and, and the biblical lens is going to differ from the other in that uh, we view people as moral agents. We don't just view people as vacuous entities. We, we believe that we're people that are either living for the glory of God or for the glory of, of ourselves. I was just going to say that when you were talking about relating to, to everyone that you counsel because you are like them in some way, it's interesting because when you read this side of the page, I I don't really relate to this very much. Yeah. But then you read this side, yeah. and I'm like, oh. Great. It's good. One is very sterile. One is very human. Mm-hmm. It sounds like the image of God is very big in your counseling. Mm-hmm. How kind of elaborate on how the image of God really comes into play with it. In terms of us being conformed into his image? No, in terms of how we uh, work with someone. Um, We're out of time, but there's a whole class that that we're going to spend talking about that very thing. Yes, sir. Great. Yes, in about two more weeks. Okay. Okay. Cool. Teacher, the people have been saying about how to approach. I was wondering, do you always cover them 
prayer could be for peace, for God to, to tell the person sorry, to convict them of their need, because if that's not there, it's a waste. Yes. Right. So the question was, should we, should we always be praying that the Lord would bring conviction if it's needed? And I would say, absolutely. Okay. Uh, to honor your time, uh, we'll, we'll stop now and we'll pick up here next week. Thank you all for being here. Let me pray for you. Okay. Father, we are, when we deal in the intricacies of human brokenness, my hope always and my prayer for those here is that we would ourselves be humbled as we see ourselves in the broken. It's such a powerful reminder every day that we are desperate for a redeemer. We need you. And there are people here today who, who may know others in very difficult situations or who themselves may be there. And I just pray that your grace and spirit would guide them uh, and comfort them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Yeah. Yeah.